0: Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eales. It brings me great pleasure to bring you this deep dive interview with filmmaker Matthew Holmes. I've been following Matthew's work since the release of The Legend of Ben Hall back in 2016. Since then, I've eagerly awaited Matthew's follow-up films. His passion and tenacity makes Matthew one of my favourite filmmakers working in Australia today. Matthew started his career working on television commercials as a stop-motion animator, sculptor, and storyboard artist. His first official film was Twin Rivers, a 1939 set drama which follows two brothers who embark on a 500-mile journey on foot across New South Wales. In 2016, Matthew released The Legend of Ben Hall, an epic western examining the life of the infamous bush ranger. Matthew's latest film, The Cost, is set to have its world premiere at Monster Fest over the weekend, and I was thrilled to hear Matthew's stories about the making of the film during this interview. The Cost is a perfectly paced white knuckle thriller following two men who are driven to desperate measures to exact justice when the law fails them. This is a morally challenging film that will hook you from start to finish. I was lucky enough to take an early look at it, and I'm pleased to confirm it's a winner and you should add it to your must-see list. Of course, Matthew and I discuss all of these films in this interview, and Matthew also gives us an update on his latest bullshark creature feature, Fear Below, which he's currently filming. The film stars Jake Ryan, Josh McConville, and a swag of Matthew Holmes' regulars. As I mentioned before, the cost will screen at Monster Fest in various states from 26th of November until the 4th of December, so check out the Monsterfest website for details. Anyway, enjoy. Matthew, welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. It's so great to be chatting
1: with you. Thank you for having me. Now it's great to finally to finally be on.
0: Um, it's a real pleasure for me to have you on this podcast. Um, I've covered your work extensively over at Cinema Australia. And although I published a ton of feature articles, interviews and uh, a review for The Legend of Ben Hall, I never actually interviewed you for the film, which has always been a bit of a regret of mine. Um, so I'm looking forward to chatting about your career so far, as well as your latest films, The Cost, uh, which is about to have its world premiere at Monsterfest and Fear Below, which you're currently filming.
1: Yes, yes, no, it's, it's, it's great to, uh, yeah, no, it is great to finally talk in person. I know, yeah, like I said, we had a lot of contact over the years, but this is the first time we have actually chatting in person. So it's great to finally have that, that opportunity.
0: Uh, as I often do on this podcast, uh, I want to go all the way back for a moment. Uh, you started your career as a stop motion animator working on TV commercials. Where did your interest in uh, stop motion and, and animation come from?
1: Uh, look, my interest in stop-motion animation came from, um, I guess, from the childhood films that I grew up watching, um, like Jason and the Argonauts, which had a lot of stop-motion, obviously Ray Harryhausen, and in Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars and things like that. Uh, they were the, my, the films that I fell in love with as a kid and made me want to be a filmmaker, and the animation part of it really appealed to me because I was very much into drawing cartoons and cartoon characters as well. So I um, it really started there and i was both a filmmaker and an animator and always have been but i guess to get a job in the industry i sort of leaned towards animation um and at that time just as i was really really getting into it uh digital animation was in its infancy so it wasn't i didn't get into digital i was much more interested in the traditional and I ended up getting uh, – I would make my animated sh- films for, for high school projects and things like that, and, and I'd make them at home. And I got a week of work experience at uh, Anifex, which was um, a film uh, – an animation company in Adelaide. And I did a, work of, a, a week of work experience for Year 12, and I enjoyed it so much I asked to come back for another week of work experience once I'd done my exams, and they were, they were fine to have me back. And at the end of that week, they, um, they said – hey, you're actually quite useful. Do you want to start next year doing some casual work for us? And that's how I got my first break, I guess, into the film industry. And I started working for them casually, kept making my own films. And, you know, within a few years, I was part-time, then I was full-time, and then I was animating, you know, major campaigns for Australia and internationally. Um, And I worked there for 15 years.
0: Incredible! And what were some of those uh, commercials and some of those brands that you were work working on? Is is there anything that people might recognize?
1: Yes, I've uh, I animated a huge amount of the home hardware ads. You remember the Dogalog? Ooh,
0: yes, yeah. Ads?
1: Yes, I animated more than them than I could possibly remember. Wow. Uh, I did lots of the Schmackos dogs go wacko for Schmacko ads. Mister Reach, Louis the Fly, um, McDonald's. Oh, just. So many commercials over over fifteen years I worked on, so those probably be the most recognisable ones.
0: Is there much work out there still for for this kind of animation, or is it
1: completely no. taken over? No, it's still around. Stop motion is still around, but not nowhere near as much as what it um, as there is anymore. I, I wouldn't blame um, computer animation, though. Certainly, computer animation became a competitor, mm. but it, but the thing with computer animation, it wasn't necessarily cheaper. Uh, in fact a lot of times stop motion was actually cheaper than doing digital and the company nfx which is it doesn't it's closed down now closed to stores a few years ago but um we were doing quite well in the in the in the in the digital versus um you know stop motion i guess competition what what actually uh, ended up sort of killing those kind of ads um was actually television changed when the internet really started taking off and when um, there was, you know, Foxtel and now then Netflix and all this stuff came in. Um, the budgets for TV commercials just plummeted. So, you know, Kellogg's would spend half a million dollars on a rice bubbles ad, you know, and, you know, to have huge budgets for these commercials. And all of that got slashed when television changed and people weren't spending as much on advertising anymore on TV and all the all the ads got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And so, you know, animation is expensive and really that was probably what killed um, killed animation, stop motion animation more than, than anything it was just the expense and people just not having the budgets anymore.
0: Yeah, it's hard to think about it at this time that there was once a time where animated TV commercials were all the rage, you know, 90% of TV commercials were animated.
1: Yeah, there were so many of them. And those home hardware ads were so popular and they ran for years. Like I was watching them even before I got out of high school. I was watching those ads and um, they were so effective. But eventually the, spend, the, what the, the money that these companies had to spend on advertising and the cost of making those ads just no longer became affordable because people just weren't watching as much TV. I mean, there used to be, you know, five channels and that was it. And everyone watched them. But then everything changed when the internet and streaming came in.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so were you always um, intending to make the leap uh, into filmmaking um, or, or was that triggered by That's something? Absolutely.
1: No, no, I, I said I, I, they were always tandem. I was always working on other live action films at the same time. So I got into um, I got into animation and an effects at the beginning of 1995 and then I was shooting my first uh, feature drama, live action, in 2001. Um, so it was very, always very much in, in tandem. I always knew I wanted to get into live, live action, but I always, 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 had this interest in animation. And I found after a few years, animation, there's so much work that goes into it. And you only end up with so many minutes of footage after all this work. I spent three years working on a 13 minute film. Mm. And at the end of it, I thought, man, I need more than 13 minutes to show for three years of work. Mm. So I, um, I, I sort of started to lean more towards wanting to do live action, and I guess animation became my day job, and so I kind of, I lost interest, and I felt like I had pretty much done everything I, I needed to do with stop motion, and I kind of reached this point where I should, I either either took it to the next level and started working for a company like Ardman Animation or something, uh, and, you know, moved to the UK, or I needed to go nuts time to actually focus on live action which is really where i think my greatest love is
0: yeah and i guess you still do incorporate some of your animated work into feature film because you would have to have some of the most detailed storyboards that i've ever seen um considering that passion that you once had for animation that must be an enjoyable part of the process for you to create these storyboards
1: yeah yeah it is animation my animation background absolutely informs my my current filmmaking i learned so much at at NFX. Uh learning to get things in camera rather than relying on digital effects, uh, but also just the precision planning of animation. Really, I just started applying precision planning to my, uh, you know, to my directing in live action. Uh, it gives you an extreme eye for detail as well. You you, you become very very. Uh, fussy about you know framing and 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 what's in the shot and things like that because animation forces you to you know constantly concentrate on every part of the image and you know over a long period of time so it absolutely did give me skills that I've that I still carry today and of course you know drawing and everything you know I've always had an interest in drawing ever since I was a young child so being able to draw really helps me with my storyboard so um yeah no it's definitely informed it and helped it so mm. definitely
0: um, in your biography, you describe The Legend of Ben Hall as being your sophomore feature film uh, following Tw- Twin mm-hmm. Rivers. Do you not acknowledge The Biscuit Effect as your first feature film?
1: Oh, oh not really. <laughs> I mean, it, technically it is my mm-hmm. first feature film if you really want to be technical about it. But yeah. um, I, I don't think I count it because it never got any kind of distribution. Yeah. Um, it never got picked up and it never got sold. It, you know, it didn't it didn't do anything. It was an experiment. Um, and I actually made it while I was making Twin Rivers because I was shooting Twin Rivers. It took me four years to shoot Twin Rivers and about two years to do all the post because I was I was paying for it all myself. And I think it was about in the fourth or fifth year that I, I was so sick of how long this film was taking that uh, I thought, I wonder if there's a way to actually shoot entire feature film in a day. Yeah. Because I was... So I set myself that challenge to try to shoot a, a, an entire feature film in a day and how I could pull that off. And that's sort of what the the biscuit effect was born out of. Uh, and we nearly pulled it off. It was more like a day and a half. But, yeah, we essentially shot that in a day and a half. Really?
2: Um, wow,
0: a day and a half.
1: Yeah, yeah. What we, what we did is we – there was no – there was a rough story sketch and there was no script, but we, I just got all the actors and we just did a total improvise and we just followed them around with two cameras for the entire day. Mm. And we just set everything in motion. We put all the actors, told them where they needed to be at what time, you know, all across the city. And then we would just, we just went and we just shot all day and didn't stop. And at the end of it, I thought at the end of the day, I thought, well, that was the biggest disaster ever that that is never going to cut together this is this was a total disaster because there was no second takes there was no anything it was just shoot what happens and all the actors are just making this stuff up on on the, on the fly and um but when i reviewed the footage like a week later when i had the, the bravery to actually face the footage uh <laughs> i actually thought hang on this is pretty funny and um i think i can make this work so i spent the next few months editing it together and it actually, you know, and then we we like we shot another half a day of some interviews with those characters and put it all together, and well, ah, we had a little experimental comedy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But yeah, it technically is my first, but I don't I don't really count it as my first.
0: So when you were reviewing that footage and you realised that it did work, what was it about it that that worked the most for you? I mean, I've only seen the trailer, I haven't seen the films, but the the performances seem to be top notch here
1: yeah well i think it was because on the day it was uh, like because i was one of the cameramen yeah and it was just insanely frenetic like it was just everything was just happening all around like we couldn't you know there was no way to judge what or assess how this was going and it all just felt like a disaster and there were all there were some things some things that happened on the day as well that that shouldn't have happened and it was just like so at the end of it we just all felt terrible like it was just a big 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 mess um, but it's one of those things, you don't have the objectivity when, you, when you're doing it, but it's not until afterwards and you look at it and you go, oh, hang on, there's something here. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it was just the performances. It was the, it was the strange and wo- weird and wonderful characters that those actors created because it was up to the actor to create the character. I gave them the briefest outline and I said, you create the character, you come up with the name, the background and everything, the whole personality. Don't even tell me about it. Yeah. You just surprise me on the day and do stuff. That's how crazy and loose it was. But we ended up falling in love with the characters so much, we actually, all of us put our money together and we actually self-financed a six-part TV series called Crooked, which used all the same characters and a very, and a, and a much more organised version of that kind of shooting. Um, and we shot six episodes, for te- about half-hour episodes for television, but um, we just could never get any of the networks interested in it, and we only ended up editing about half of it. And then I ended up just abandoning abandoning the project
2: right
0: right is any of it is is the biscuit effect or or any of the um, episodes available to watch anywhere Could, can people find oh them?
1: yeah they're all on YouTube they're all right. on YouTube right. yep yeah they're biscuit of, I think the full biscuit effect is on YouTube um, and it's and crooked you can see um, we ended up breaking it into weather not when when television you know channel seven nine ten showed no interest in Um, you know helping us get it all post-produced because we only had the money to shoot it Uh, we ended up breaking into webisodes and we're going to release it like an episode you know every two weeks Mm. and and we you know but we only ended up getting so many episodes in and then we again I I was spending too much time on it and I didn't feel like there was any interest in it so I abandoned it but there are rough rough cuts and all that sort of stuff it's all up on YouTube if people want to have a look it is it is very funny it's very wacky and out there and and the, and the cast were you know were really really good, but um, unfortunately it just didn't it didn't fly. It was just a, a another failed experiment, as all <laughs> filmmakers have.
0: Um. So you mentioned that you were um, shooting um, Twin Rivers at the same time. There. Um. How would you describe yourself as a filmmaker back in two thousand and five uh, when you were making these films?
1: Ah, uh, I think I was uh, uh, optimistic, very frustrated. Um probably a little starry-eyed about what the reality of filmmaking was, um, and, and I had really no idea how I was ever going to break in or how I was ever going to do it. I had no roadmap other than just I'm just going to make films and show them and then someone will give me a chance somehow. Like there was no real true understanding of how films get financed and I just didn't know any of that. I didn't know any people and I didn't go to film school or anything. So it was just um I had this blind optimism I guess frustration with my projects that I couldn't get them finished quicker and I was so always working with limited budgets but I was decided that was my path and I was going to do it no matter what um fortunately I did have Rolf to hear he came on board as a mentor and someone to help me finish twin rivers um I actually he, he someone had introduced me to Rolf and I showed him some of my footage and everything and he he was complimentary and, you know, tried to help where he could. And I tried to get the South Australian Film Corporation to uh, get me some post-production funds to finish Twin Rivers. Uh, there's a weird and funny story there, but I, I won't go into it. But uh, they ended up saying no and rejected my application to help me do the post because I'd shot all the Twin Rivers. I just wanted po- m- uh, money for post. Uh, and when the Film Corporation rejected it, Rolf here was quite annoyed with the Film Corporation for that. They thought that was very... Uh, unfair and that they should have supported me so what he decided to do was support me himself so he marshaled some of his uh collaborators the people he works with especially in post-production he marshaled them around and said let's all help get this guy's film made uh finished and they all came on board and they all did it uh, for nothing um they, so that was rolf who and rolf actually oversaw the final cut of twin rivers i set up my computer in his living room and for a couple of months two nights a week i'd go to rolf's house and sit uh, he would sit in his lounge chair and I would sit I'd set up my computer near his TV and he would sit there on the couch and he would help me cut he helped me find cut twin rivers um, so I had a bit of a I guess I had like a 2 month film school with we Rolf here and got to ask him lots of questions and talk to him about his career and, and I learned a lot there
0: yeah you've just answered my next question there actually which is great um Uh, because I did want to talk about uh, uh, Molly Reynolds and and Rolf de Heer's involvement there. And uh, for people who are listening, uh, there is a making of documentary on YouTube about Twin Rivers. And uh, Matthew goes into great detail um, about Molly and and Rolf's involvement. And as an Mm. Australian film enthusiast myself, I find that to be one of the most fascinating stories to come out of this film. Um, What did it mean for you at the time to have, these two powerhouses in in Molly and and Rolf being a part of this film, you know, your first official feature film, and you've got these two, um, you know, guiding you along the way.
1: Oh, it was it was incredible. Um, it, I was I was so grateful and so um, felt like for the first time that someone was taking notice yes. of what I was doing. Someone, I think that's all you. As a filmmaker, you get so frustrated, especially when you're in the early days, that no one is seeing you. Or acknowledging your hard work. Because, you know, I, I've worked so hard on Twin Rivers and I poured it, my heart and soul and all my money into it. And sure, it's rough around the edges and everything, but it's it was all my passion was in it. And all my dreams and hopes were sort of resting on it. And to see someone, to have someone like Rolf go, you know what, I see what you're doing and I'm going to help you. Um, that was That was incredible. I was so grateful. And yeah, it was Rolf and Molly all the time, just both sitting on the couch, just <laughs> helping me recut the movie and, and shape it all up. Because I remember I had a rough cut of the movie. It ran about uh, 15 minutes longer or, or maybe even more. And I remember one of my first conversations with Rolf is that um, he said, um, he goes, uh, Matthew, he goes, the structure of your film is fundamentally flawed. And I said, okay, okay. Um, and he goes, but it's fixable. And I know how to do it. So, bring your computer over. I'm going to sit. I'm going to help you recut this. We're going to write a. I'm going to write a voiceover for you, um, and we're going to make this work. I know how to make it work. So it was film school one hundred and one. We rolled to here, and yeah, what a, what a what an amazing uh, mentor to have for that. And with Molly, with Molly beside him as well, lending all of her. Um, you know, with all her. It was actually through Molly in lots of ways that I got Rolf behind it because Molly was so hard, so much trying to... She was working for the Film corporate at the time and she was really, really trying to help me get the post-production uh, grant um, approved. So... Yeah, so I owe both of them a lot and um yeah, I, I definitely see him as one of the key figures in in my career as a young filmmaker.
0: Oh, that's incredible. What an incredible story. Uh were you open to to his criticisms at the time? Did did you take them well? Or?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um I mean, you know, you don't you don't question Ralph to him, right? <laughs> <That's> right. But, <laughs> so I was I was quite open and like it but the thing with Rolf is he would he would simply explain why he would mm-hmm. just say this is the problem, and you go oh yeah wow I never saw that before and so you learn, and then he goes and then he goes but we fix it by going but 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 we do one two three, and then we do it and I go wow we fixed it, so it's just you know invaluable lessons and I was very open to his uh, very open to his feedback. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he elevated that film, the cut of the film and the voiceover that he wrote for it, uncredited. Mm-hmm. Um, he, um, you know, he just elevated that film to such a, such a level that I could never have got there on my own. So he really is someone that sort of, you know, he was up the ladder and he turned around and saw someone struggling at the bottom and reached down and, and pulled me up the next rung. And, you know, you're always, there's always people like that, that, you know you've got to be grateful for. Yeah, yeah. That, that's filmmakers a real... really... Sorry? Yeah. No, filmmakers like myself, when they're in the young, young younger years, we, we we yearn to have the person up the ladder to just give us one more step up, you know, mm-hmm. to turn around and reach down and go, I see what you're doing here. Here's a helping hand to get you to the next place.
0: Yeah, yeah. Incredible. Uh, have you stayed in contact with, with Molly and Rolf?
1: Yes, uh, not and not in great deal, but every now and again I'll reach out to with an email and ask how he's going and and things like that. So we, we keep in touch, but it's not um, but it's not it's not a lot. He's he's moved to Tasmania now, I believe. Yeah, and yeah. So on. But yeah, every now and again I'll ask him a question or uh, you know or, or or just see how he's going and all that sort of thing. So yeah, we still maintain a, a distant but very friendly relationship.
0: Yeah, and I see that he has a he's got a new film coming out. Actually, I think it just had its premiere at the Adelaide Film Festival. Um, yes he
1: has he has no that's that's that was great i did actually message him at one point while i was prepping and and trying to get fear below up and to ask him a few questions because i was originally going to be shooting fear below in south australia and he was shooting at the same time he was going to be shooting at the same time so yeah yeah. Yeah, so it was nice to sort of touch base and you know i'm you know i'm making films and he's still making films It it was great and he was he was very pleased that i'm still making he was very pleased to hear that I'm still making films and finding ways to do it because he acknowledges how hard it is for everybody
0: Mm -hmm. um so so Molly and Rolf's uh, involvement came from you not being supported by a major funding body like the South Australian Film Commission um I reckon that you're the kind of person who has a lot to say about Australia's current funding opportunities for emerging filmmakers as most filmmakers do because it's quite frustrating at times uh what would you say is your biggest gripe about uh film funding in australia at the moment
1: look i think you know it's my biggest gripe is probably there's just you know there's only so many uh places at the table Mm -hmm. they're so limited in their resources and i know they'd probably love to help as many people as possible but there's just so many limited places at the table. Not everybody can sit down and have and have a have a meal. So and you've got everyone from, you know, established directors to, you know, the newest beginners all vying for this very small pot of gold, uh, to get some coin from it. And, you know, it's like a lottery. Um I mean, obviously the project's gotta have merit and so on. And I have received support you know from film victoria and you know screen queensland and you know most of the major funding bodies on one one or one or more of my films so far but it's always very limited um and um and yeah and i've had lots of rejection as well so i guess my advice is i mean that's their situation i don't know how they choose their projects but they've got their own way and and it's a mystery but um my advice to any filmmaker is do not make they do not make their approval or their financing any part of your model make your film without them and find a way to do it without them mm-hmm. um if you get their support along the way bonus great and and still try but just don't factor them in as part of your business plan you know or part of your uh because they are gatekeepers in many ways and i don't and you need to get rid of as many gatekeepers as you can if you want to succeed and persevere yeah
0: very you have very to just make it advice. happen on your own make it happen yeah. just go out there and do it uh, very good advice um uh you recently re-released uh twin rivers in 2019 well why did you decide to do that is this the film that you look back on with the most fondness i'm, I'm just curious to know why you decided oh, to re-release it
1: i decided to re-release it because uh the rights were back had come back to me mm. and it was always finished in standard definition and it was shot in standard definition. Mm. Um, and I re- we were in a high definition world and the DVDs that were available with the, the resolution was very muddy and horrible. And I just wanted to clean it up and I had a bit of spare time and um, you know, we have the tools now to, to clean up high de- standard def to, you know, to some form of high definition. It's never truly high def though. Yeah. Um, and so I just thought, well, it's it sort of, you know, got finished at a time when high death was not a thing. So I really wanted to try to see if I could resurrect it. And, um, yeah, it was just sort of a, just so I could, it would be in the best possible uh, state so people could enjoy it and didn't think that really anything of it more than that. And when I, after I did that, I actually got contacted um, by Dustin Claire's company, Fighting Chance Film, and yeah. they asked if they could get... Um, you know the worldwide rights to it, and they've gotten it onto Amazon um, around the world. And you know, I get every, every now and again I get a little royalty check. It's not, it's never much, but I get a little royalty check in the post <laughs> for it. Um And so it, I just love that people that it's available for people to see. That's all I cared about. Just I just want people to be able to view it. I made it and spent all that time and money on it. As long as people can enjoy it, yeah. So it was just it was nice to just get it out there.
0: Yes, and um, and for listeners out there, uh, Matthew just mentioned where you can see the film, and also be sure to check out that uh, making of documentary on YouTube because it's great. and And I love that the film was a family affair for you, having been inspired by some of your grandmother's stories, and uh, and the film also co starred your brother Darren. Uh, that yes. that must have been an exciting time to be working um, with your family, and and you know having it in being inspired by your family's story.
1: Yeah, it was a real. Oh man the the twin rivers time was such an era um for me and it was you know working with my brother was you know we've been we've been making films together since we were little kids we've been running around with swords and wooden guns and making our own version of star wars which you can watch on youtube as well yeah. um <laughs> you know we we can we've been doing that for years so it just felt like business as usual like mm-hmm. when we went out and made twin rivers um but I mean, Twin Rivers was made without a crew. Like, you know, we didn't, it was just me and a camcorder and a microphone stuck on top. And, you know, we got a few crew members, and every now and again, the cast were doubling as crew. And it was real, real indie world stuff. Yes. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was lovely. It was, a, it was a, I definitely look back on it as a very fond, as a very fond time. It was definitely the formation. Um, but I look back and learn I've learned so much. I probably learned a lot from Twin Rivers about what not to do, more than yes. what what to do when it comes yes. to making a film. Yeah. But those lessons can um, teach you perhaps more even more than what you got right is what you got wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, as well as uh, Rolf being a one-man uh, film school for you, you were doing the f- uh, the best film school possible by actually going out there and making a film. Um. Yeah. You can't yeah, get any better yeah. than that, and I I admire that. Um, it's I think it
1: is a really good film it is a good film school and I would recommend people always ask me should I go to film school or make a film and I always say oh, or just not go to film school and I just say well I think both are great it's really how you apply yourself in those two forms like it you'll there's plenty of great filmmakers who never went to film school and there's plenty of people who went to film school never became filmmakers
2: mm-hmm.
1: so you know and vice versa so yeah. just go the way you've you want to go like you know do do whatever you feel is the way that that you'll learn the best but for me it was i just wanted to get out there and make get my hands dirty and just start and i I, i'm not a classroom kind of person you sit there listen to lectures i i once i was out of school i couldn't get wait to get out i had no intention of doing uni or any further education i just wanted to go out and make stuff yeah um so yeah
0: Excellent. Excellent. Um, uh, So moving on from that period of your life, um, the film which you're probably best known for so far is The Legend of Ben Hall. Um, I know full Mm. well that you threw every ounce of yourself at this film because I sat behind my computer desk and, and I watched how much effort you put into this film. Um, how do you reflect on that part of your life and i do say that part of your life because the film was years worth of effort on either side of actually making the film itself um you know you had your, you made the short film version uh, you did the crowdfunding campaign then you released the film and and then you know there was so much work to get the the film out there how do you reflect on that
1: part uh, very fondly on ben hall um you know I, it's a film i'm very proud of uh it wasn't the Ben Hall film that I set out to make in the beginning. That's that that was evident. Um, you, you know in in in, it,
0: in in what way?
1: Oh well, you know, as a filmmaker, you you have your grand plans about mm-hmm. how you want your career to go and what you're going to make and what, you know that sort of thing and what kind of film it's going to be. And straight after Twin Rivers, like two thousand and seven, I was like, what what am I going to do next? And learned to and I discovered Ben Hall, and mm-hmm. Uh, the story of Ben Hall and I started writing the script straight away and by 2008 or 9 I had a I had a near 200 page Ben Hall script it was monstrous it was epic it was such a big script Um and really was the first feature film I ever actually sat down and wrote because Twin Rivers started as a short film and just kept growing yeah. and growing and growing and before I knew it, I had a feature and that's why Rolf said your uh, film is fundamentally struck like fundamentally flawed from a structural point of view, mm-hmm. because I didn't ever start with a finished with a, with a script with a feature script. I was making it up as I went.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it was the first script I wrote. So that was very hard. Um, and then of course I cut it down and got it to about 140 pages, took it to the South Australian film corporation. I said, this is what I'd like to do next. And they they were pretty tepid in their reaction to it. They were like, yeah, no one wants Bush Ranger films. <laughs> and um. The, the general consensus was this will never be you, you'll never get this made as your second as your second film it's too expensive and this genre doesn't sell blah 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 so I thought okay well I'm gonna put that on the shelf in twenty five years time I'm gonna make this epic thirty million dollar Ben Hall movie that'll be my that'll be my uh, swan song you know <laughs> and um, it sat there for years doing nothing after that as I t- attempted to get smaller projects off the ground and and again they would all fall over one by one and eventually I got so sick and tired of waiting to make a movie it was you know my my wife and and my friends said encourage me look you just need to go out and just make something even if it's a short film and I was I don't want to make a short film I'm past (laughs) short films I'll just go out and do something you love just to keep the passion alive because I was sitting behind a desk just getting rejected for years Mm. so I just thought well you know what why don't I play in the Ben Hall world why don't I just make a short film I'll take the last 15 pages of that script and I'll shoot that last 15 pages. Cause that's the fun bit. Mm. And maybe that'll help get the feature off the ground one day. And that's all. And that's what I ran the Kickstarter for to, to, um, to do that. And then that Kickstarter just blew up and we raised more, like twice as much money as we, as we thought we'd need. And then that blew up and turned into the feature. But, you know, when, when we had shot, when we had shot all the short film footage, we were still a little bit short. Um, we hadn't done it all yet, but, but, You know, my producers on that were like, well, why don't we keep going? You've already shot three weeks worth. Why don't we just keep going and turn this into a feature? And I said, well, there's no way we can get, you know, $30 million. And they went, well, well, let's see if we can do it for a couple of mil Mm. or less. And I said, well, it can't be done. And they said, well, can can you reduce the script? And I said, well, I could take maybe the last third of that script, the last nine months of Ben Hall's life, and I could turn and I could drag that out and make that a feature. So essentially I, re- I discarded two-thirds of the Venhall script and then just expanded the last the last act of my script became the whole of the Legend of Hall.
0: Yeah. And isn't it interesting then that you mentioned the crowdfunding campaign, which was very successful actually? Um, it, I, I hope that the funding body who rejected it originally and said that nobody's interested in Bush Ranger films uh, acknowledged that.
1: <laughs> well you know whoever said that at the film in the film corporation i think had long moved on uh, um but i i i do often wonder if the the person who said this will never be your second feature um i can't quite remember actually who said it to me yeah but you know when it did come out as my second feature i did think gee i wonder if they think that they say i wonder what they think about that statement yes but yeah. um yeah um but yeah so it wasn't the grand great big bloated huge epic bush ranger thing that i i had in my mind when i originally started writing the ben hall script um and so you know this was a much more condensed smaller version of it Mm. so um i and while i'm very very proud of it i i still wish i could have done the big one but that's why i decided to then make it an anthology Mm. and i took those other two thirds of the script and, and then i broke them apart and 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 you know wanted to make go back and make those two those two earlier chapters that linked up to the legend of Ben Hall.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah.
1: But I couldn't, I couldn't get the um, financial interest um, with the legend of Ben Hall Uh, after the release of the legend of Ben Hall. um, It's, you know, it was, it, it didn't, you know, while we got money, our investors got their money back and everything like that. It did, it, it'd been the legend of Ben Hall did not was not co- commercially successful enough mm. for anyone to really get interested in making the first two film, the the, the the two more films in the anthology.
0: It's a real shame because you know, the Bush range. there is an audience out there for Bush Ranger films, and that's proven by um, you know, the audiences that you attract on social media. I mean, the legend of Ben Hall's page still gets attention uh, from people, um. Uh, the, in my I opinion, know yeah it, it, it must be quite frustrating um yeah
1: it is because you know I just know that given more money and given yeah. the resources mm. to do it right because we really I mean that the legend of Ben Hall ever got made into the film that it is to me still I still wonder at it and go how the hell do we pull that off yeah, yeah. um <laughs> uh with the, with the amount of money we didn't have uh how do we pull it off but I just know done right, like with the right support and the budget. I just think, you know, these Bush Ranger films can be phenomenal and yeah. equal uh, to any of the Westerns being made in, you know, like comparable to the Tombstones and the White mm. Earths and those kinds of movies. If only they were given the resources, the money, and the time to do it, we could, yeah. it would explode. Yeah. But, um, so, yeah. Oh, but it's just, you know, it's just not a proven, tested genre it's mm-hmm. still so niche the bush ranger genre there's still only a handful of bush ranger movies in the world yeah um and while i'm so proud that legend of ben hall is one of them there's still like really maybe a dozen that mm-hmm. are, like except for the ones that were made you know in the in the silent era there's really only a dozen bush ranger movies
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um... it's a
1: very unexplored genre
2: you're listening
1: to the Cinema Australia podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts or at cinemaaustralia.com.au. Uh,
0: following Ben Hall you you announced uh, a series of bush ranger films which you just mentioned then um, including you know the Ned Kelly film Glenn Rowan as well as potential TV series. Are they still something that you'd like to uh, potentially explore down the road?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um I have not abandoned any of this. No. I've simply changed its form. Yeah. Like, you know, we tried to get the anthology. We couldn't get the interest. I thought, well, Ned Kelly's much more popular. And then we tried to get a couple of different versions of the Ned Kelly story off the ground. Um, But, again, just couldn't get the interest. And, of course, there was the Justin Kurtzel's Ned Kelly film that was happening around the same time. Mm-hmm. And that pretty much sort of cancelled out ours. So we, um, I thought, again, put it on the back burner. It'll always be there, um, but what I actually did is decided to, um, and I'm still I still pitch it around today. I've got a full pitch for a series called The Bush Rangers, mm. which is a four part, fifty two episodes, hour long episodes. Uh, it, it's completely mapped out um, this entire four season um, series called The Bush Rangers, and it covers every bush ranger from you know from the eighteen fifties all the way to the eighteen eighties. Um, and ends with the Ned Kelly and has all the bush Rangers in between and links all their stories together just as they were linked historically. Um, It's just an epic series. And we've got the outlines for every single episode already there. They're all done.
0: Amazing. Amazing. So, Come on. There's huge potential here.
1: <laughs> I oh, wish yeah. somebody it's, was it's, listening
0: it, and would go, yeah, let's make it.
1: It's the it, – I, it's the Game of Thrones of Australian bushranging wow. um, in, in that area. It's all these intersecting characters, male, female, bush rangers, police. It's just, it's, it would, on the, as we have written it, it would easily be the most expensive and the most epic television series ever produced in Australia <laughs> if someone produced it the way I want to do it. Yeah. And this is why it's so hard to get off the ground because yeah. it's such, it's so big. And but I know it would be popular in, in, in around the world if it if it was pulled off. So, um, you know, I've got, got this massive 150 page pitch book for it, um, online that you know you can see every every episode outline incredible so, uh, come on
0: Stan if you're out there listening make it happen yeah.
1: Stan was actually the first place we pitched it we went to Sydney we had a meeting with at, at Stan me and yeah. my producer went in and we pitched them this with this huge thing and unfortunately um that they had some reasons why it just really wasn't what they were looking for at this time mm-hmm. and um so we we sulked out of there and went no nah, okay well <laughs> we had Netflix sniffing around it uh, a few years ago very very interested uh, in fact um, yeah they were quite interested in it and uh, they actually were so interested and they were so impressed with the pitch that they this is Netflix us that they actually said send this to Netflix Australia and see if you know what they think because we yeah. think this is great yeah. and Netflix Australia turned it down
0: incredible I mean these these streaming companies are, are being well, they should be forced to, uh, you know, produce Australian uh, content to reach these uh, Absolutely. quotas. Absolutely. I mean, you've Absolutely. got Amazon right now who have just uh, re- revived Neighbours, for God's sake. I mean, they could be investing in something original like this.
1: I know, I know. <laughs> I so want to get... Half the problem is how do you pitch to these streaming companies? How do you even get through the door? Yeah, exactly. Just getting through the door is sometimes even a bigger battle than yeah. making the actual product. Mm-hmm. So I'm just hoping that, you know, with the release of the cost and then, you know, you know, later on Fear Below, I'm just hoping that that sort of helps validate me a bit more so I can at least get my foot in the door to these places and pitch these ideas to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and let them see what it could, what, what the possibilities could be.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, before we move on to the cost, I just want to ask you very briefly um, around that same time you also announced your intentions to remake uh, the Australian classic Bluefin. Is that still something you're keen to see come to fruition?
1: Oh look if I could, I'd love to. Um, uh, we were got because there was a moment
0: there where Bluefin. that felt like it was it was going to be your next film.
1: Oh yeah, it was it was poised like yeah. we were it was poised to be my next one. Yeah. Uh, family genre, yeah. Exciting, you know, remake of a of, of a beloved Australian classic, yeah. and um, you know, and I had um, you know, I had an agreement with the with the Thiele family to you know for the rights for the book, and it was all poised to happen. But Storm Boy, the new Storm Boy, came out, and when that really didn't set the box office on fire,
2: yeah,
1: um, internationally especially, yeah, it kind of it just scuttled our the ability for us to go in in fact we were watching storm boy with a lot of anticipation to then so if that exploded and did really really well both here and internationally we were going to use that as our right they've made they've remade storm boy here's Bluefin ready to go look how good that did but because it was a little lukewarm it pretty much scuttled our plans and we couldn't get any we, we couldn't get any investors in it
0: yeah um i'm Which disappointed yeah i was disappointed in that remake of storm boy it didn't capture any of the uh, magic of the original film um because the original film was so perfect it didn't oh, need a remake whereas whereas no, bluefin no. you know there were some flaws with bluefin and, and it does warrant a remake and a new interpretation of it um yeah so that's a oh, shame absolutely. that it worked out that
1: way for you yeah it was and 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 i know that the you know the person in the tilly family that read my script um even though i have made some changes to it uh very minor but they said that i kept that they really felt i captured the heart and of the book in my script and um yeah and it was something and, and, and i really heightened the danger and the excitement and the and you know the desperation of that of that story and you know, and everyone who reads my blueprint script really love it. But again, it's an expensive film to make. You're dealing with water, the ocean. So again, it's one of those films. It's it's still in my it's still in my script pile and. It's always there, and if one day someone says, let's do it, it, it's all ready to go. So Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Let's move on to the cost uh, because this is what we're really here to talk about. Um, I was so uh, excited to uh, have the opportunity to take an early look at this film, and I absolutely loved it. It was one of those ones I sat down on a Sunday morning um, and I watched the film from beginning to to end. I was was totally encaptured by it. Um, uh, As I mentioned in my intro, the film is about to have its world premiere at Monsterfest on Saturday the 26th of November. Um, It's a thriller and it incorporates some heavy themes as well as strong violence, but it also asks those watching it to question their own morality in a way. Um, Before we get stuck into the film, can you tell us what it's about in your own words?
1: Yes, The Cost tells the story of a uh, set over a 48-hour period it tells the story of two ordinary men who decide to take the law, not law into their own hands. They decide to take their idea of justice into their own hands and exact it. Um, and the consequences that come from that action. Um, it really came from, uh, I, it really came from a, a conversation I was having with a friend about you know, you know, as you have, everyone's had these conversations like what would happen if, if someone, you know, killed my sister or my, or my wife or my mother or a family member or a child, you know, if someone did that to me and they were sent to prison, what would I do about that? And, you know, I think we've all had that feeling like, well, I would want to go and kill that person. I would want to take revenge. I would want to see them brought to justice, you know. Uh, and, you know, and I thought, that's an interesting concept. What if someone actually, rather than having those feelings of want to take revenge, what would happen if they actually did it?
2: Mm.
1: And they actually tried to implement that urge in, in us to take full revenge mm. um, in a realistic way, not in like a movie, sort of, you know, hard boiled revenge, sort of fantasy way, but in a way that's real mm. Mm. Um, to explore that side of us. And that's really what was that's was where it was born from.
0: Yeah, it's such a terrific film. I enjoyed it so much. Um, I, I reckon I must have changed my mind three or four times while watching the film uh, as to what I'd <laughs> do in this situation that these characters find themselves in. You must have been grappling with this question too a lot during the script writing process. Uh, how did you, what conclusion did you come to? That What would you do here?
1: <laughs> well, look, I tried to... Um... What I really tried to do, uh, Greg and my co-writer Greg Moss and I, um, what we really tried to do is apart from make it a very, very affordable film by essentially mm-hmm. putting three people in the woods, and yeah. and that was our you know basic our set. Mm-hmm. Um, what we really tried to do is not really answer the questions for ourselves, yeah. and also let the audience. We'd rather go right. Here's the problem. Here's the situation. Here's what. Here's what happens when this. happens. now. You know, what do you think is right and wrong? How do you think these characters should behave? And by the two, and with the two characters of, you know, the two main characters, Aaron and David, we tried to both give them different points of view that both the audience could understand each character and go, you know what, I agree with that guy, but I also agree with that guy. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's such a conflicting situation because you can see both points of view so well. Mm-hmm. And then when you get the third character, the person that they kidnap, you also see it from his perspective as well. Mm. And you you, you understand, you know, him as well. Mm. And so it just makes it a real muddle. You don't know who you side with because you can see the good and the bad in each of them. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, that's what we were aiming for. That way people, you know, I really want, we really want people just to walk away going, I don't know who I agreed with in that situation. I don't know what I would do. I, I think I agree with him. And then the other person will have, well, I, I agree with the other guy. And we wanted it to be a coffee, like we wanted it to be one of those coffee, like after the movie, you sit down with your friends and um, have a coffee and you discuss the morality of the movie. Yeah. And that's really what we wanted the movie to be, a real conversation maker.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it's really going to be. And I kept uh, viewing it as kind of a, um, a choose your own adventure film. I kept imagining something popping up saying, would you choose to go this <laughs> way or would you choose to go that way? <laughs> um, and yep. it got me thinking, yep. it, it got me thinking actually, uh, without giving the ending away at all, which is such a terrific ending did you it got me wondering did you have multiple endings in mind while writing the script did you write multiple endings or or did you pretty much stick to
1: this one path no there was there was real no there was really the story as as you see it in the film now is is pretty much you know the structure and the bones of the story from the very beginning Mm -hmm. um nothing really changed a few there were a few you know additional scenes and slight tweaks but it's really that was the story from the very beginning there were no um there were no different endings or, or it was always going to be that way i had lots of people read the script before and <clears throat> offer up oh, i don't think it should end like that and you know lots of that sort of thing but this was a film that um i was able to make you know for I, you know we shot it for under a hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars way less than that actually Yes. Um and so and and initially uh, less than thirty five thousand dollars. Mm. So I managed to just put pull together enough money from some from some private investors that had enough faith in me to make another movie, mm. and they all put in a little bit each, and that's how we started doing it. Um. So I had full creative control. I didn't have to worry about anything else. I was just like, no, I'm going to make the movie a, a movie that I just believe in, mm-hmm. and I actually thought, you know, this could be one of the worst things I've ever made. Mm. But, again, I was so frustrated after Ben Hall with trying to get the next film, you know, the anthology, Ned Kelly, uh, Blue Finn. So many of these movies just kept falling over and never getting financed. It's like years later, I thought, I've got to make something. So, again, my friends were like, you just got to go out and do something, write something really contained yeah. that you can shoot for no money. And I was like, right, I think I've got a $10,000 idea, so let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it ended up being 10 times more that. <laughs> but um, still, it's, it's still cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where where it came from, just the desire to go out and film something. And I had thought, well, this is probably going to be so rough and around the edges, but at least I'm doing something.
0: Yeah, yeah. and and it does have that independent feel about it. And, um but it's it's such a tight, it's a tight film, it's a tight narrative. Um, and you've done so well here, Uh, It's as you said, it's a much smaller film compared to The Legend of Ben Hall, you know, in terms of scale, and it's essentially a three-hander for most of the film. Was it a liberating experience for you to be working with a scaled-back cast and crew? Uh,
1: No, in an an actual, to be completely honest, um, shooting the cost was harder than shooting The Legend of Ben Hall. Wow, wow. And I found that to be baffling, when we were out there in the forest, I remember um, being baffled when I realised that this was the hardest film I've ever made. Wow. Um, it was, and I couldn't understand why. I mean, we had a very small crew, like 12 people. 12 people. Um, wow. Most of them, uh, many of them, this was their first film they'd ever worked on. Wow. Or they'd only done shorts or things like that. So they were all volunteer. Uh, it cast was volunteer. And I was... I was production manager producer unit manager uh director script supervisor i was running i had 10 hats on that Mm -hmm. so it was very difficult and um, because we just didn't have the you know we just didn't have like big crew big support Mm -hmm. so um that was hard but it was actually a more difficult movie to shoot i think because the legend of Ben hall being a western there's a certain convention i guess to the way you shoot westerns and and in my mind's eye how you tell a story like the legend of ben hall because we've seen films like that before but with the cost i was dealing with subject material and scenes and situations that i i can't really find a movie that's too similar to it Mm. and so i it was like well, how do i even approach this how do i where do I put my camera? How? What's the language of this movie? Mm. And so we had to sort of discover the, the the cinematic language of the cost, and and the subject material, and the, and what we were asking the actors to go through, the emotional extremes we were asking the actors to go to, mm. and the physical situations we were putting them in were so demanding. Yeah, it was it was the hardest. Well, up until the film I'm now working on, it was the hardest film I'd ever worked on before. Yeah,
0: and that brings me to my next question here because, uh, as I said, there's a lot to love about this film. I really, really enjoyed it. But the performances in particular really stood out for me. And I don't usually like to single out one particular performance, but I can't help myself in saying that Damon Hunter is extremely good here. Um, He's so good with his eyes. He's so good physically. um, He's actually really brilliant um can you tell us about working with damon jordan and kevin and getting them to this place of, of this deep conflict
1: yeah absolutely well look i um damon and i have been friends since the legend of ben hall came out mm. and um you know he sort of chased me up as, a, as an actor as many actors do and befriended me and said he'd love to work with me one day and we hit it off mm. And we'd been buddies for, for, you know, for five years, always talking about, well, one day we'll work together. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the people that was going, Matt, you've got to write something small and we'll go out and do it. I'll be right there with you. We'll make this. Mm-hmm. And when I told him the idea of the cost, he was like, that's brilliant. I'm there. I'm in. Um, so it was, I sort of, he was always in mind for Aaron. So I guess in lots of ways, I wrote it thinking of him and Jordan, even though an uh, even though Jordan didn't know it at the time, I was writing it for Jordan as well. Uh, the other part for Jordan didn't know who I, I had another actor in mind for, for 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 Troy, but um he 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 ultimately turned the part down. But um but eventually I met up with um Jordan and, and gave him the script and I said, "Mate, I've got I want to shoot this film with you. This it's the lead role, or you know the yeah, there's two leads basically, yeah. but you know." Uh, and I said, "Here's the script." I can't pay you anything. It's going to be really hard to shoot and we're going to have to shoot it over weekends, but um, I want you in the lead. Will you consider, you know, going into the fray with me one more time? Yeah. And yeah, of course he accepted. So um, what I did eventually when I did cast Kevin, he was a bit of a search. I went through two other actors before getting to him. And the reason that the other two actors turned it down is not because they didn't like the script. They thought it was great. Yeah they just said i don't want to go through that experience i yeah. don't want to be that character and to go through what that character goes through i i can't li- i can't be that character for that long yeah. uh and um go through that it it was too much yeah. so they I, I, I respected that completely and um managed to find kevin and once i had the three guys it was a, like i've never had such a collaboration with actors before on both script and how we're going to tell this story. And I gave the all three guys lots of liberty to really work the script in their own way, find their own voice, if they want to change up lines, if they want to change a few things. And they were so much part of the process right from rehearsals all the way through to shooting. They were, they were even – like I had blocking in my mind that this is how we block this scene and they would go, you know what, I don't think I'd do it that way. This is how my character would do it. I'll do this. And I went with it and uh and worked with that rather than going no, no no just do it all my way i gave them a lot of freedom and it became a great collaboration between all of us mm. to create this scenario and these characters so there's as much of themselves in these characters as there is me in the in the creative process mm. Mm. So that's probably why, you know, and I and I in our first rehearsal sort of meeting with all three of us to do the script reading, I, I said to them, "Guys, this entire film will live and die on the performances." Yes. This is yes. this is not about my camera work, this is not how good the photography is. This it's got nothing to do with that. It's on you three. Mm. So mm. it this is where the film will work. And they all knew that and they were fully 100% committed and I mean, I'm so proud of them. They pulled it off.
0: You really should be. Yeah, the performances are phenomenal, and I do want to just ask you quickly about Nicole Pastor, because she's a she's a star on the rise here. Um, you know, her, her career is going from strength to strength at the moment. Did Nicole and and she is really one of the only female characters of the film, uh, other than a few obvious ones. But um, did Nicole audition for this film? Uh, how did her involvement come about? Uh,
1: not really. No, she didn't. She didn't um audition. I didn't. The only person who auditioned for this role was Kevin. Right, right. Because um, I didn't know Kevin before this film. Yeah. Um, but uh, Nicole, I like Damon was just another actress that I had met along along the way. I know she auditioned for Ben Hall.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, just you know formed a, a friendship over the years. And then when this came up, and I knew I needed. Um, well, actually, the original script didn't actually have any. It didn't actually have her as an actor in the film. She was mm. only ever a photograph. Uh, um, but then when we decided that we would revisit you know the the earlier thing that sets off this story she was just the first person I thought I bet she would love to do this and she was always saying I want to work with you Matt and so I just said hey I got a script it's you know it's this part it's this is it's pretty intense Um, and would you be willing to fly yourself over to Melbourne for uh, a few days to shoot it Um, because I couldn't afford flights or anything and she was like absolutely I'm there so, um, in the end, I, you know, I did end up having enough money to pay for her flights and accommodations, et cetera. But, um, yeah, she, she was just, again, threw herself into it, just wanted to be part of it. And, um, yeah, just knocked it out of the park. She's a pleasure to work with.
0: Yeah, she really is. Um, uh, I don't want to be insensitive to the themes explored throughout this film. But at the end of the day, it is a thriller with with plenty of violence and, it, you know, it'll please a lot of gore hounds. It is playing at Monster Fest after all. Is playing with violence as a filmmaker a fun process for you? I've always admired the prosthetics and makeup and gore involved in uh, in this genre and filmmaking. Is is that a fun process?
1: Look, it's nothing I actually really have any interest in, to be perfectly honest. I'm not a horror filmmaker and I'm not into gory films and I'm not into, I don't have any kind of pleasure in violence Mm. and I sort of you know really films that are really intense I mean I love a good intense thing but I don't like gore or horror or you know real violence for violence sake so but so the cost was such a departure for me but I I actually thought I needed really challenge myself as a filmmaker and do something like I've never done before go to extremes that I've never gone to before I wanted a movie that would Sort of knock people on the nose and go, you got to pay attention to this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because if I was going to go through all the trouble of making another indie film, which like another no-budget movie, which I swore I would never do after <laughs> Legend Van Hall, yeah. I said it better be a movie that people sit up and pay attention to Yeah. so it was literally what kind of movie would I pay attention to Mm -hmm. what themes would it have what kind of story would just grab me Mm -hmm. and I thought well that's the story and I'm going to go into some pretty dark places with this and I remember the first time I gave it to Nadia to read um she after putting it like she read Nadia it being I, your wife, of course, my wife, Nadia. Yeah. Sorry. No, when I said, so gave, uh, I gave the script to Nadia and said, I okay, I've finished my script. Um, here it is. Uh, could you read it? And she read it in like two hours flat. And at the end I came out and she went, Oh, I'm finished. And she just sort of looked up at me and just went, Oh my God. Like, what have you written? Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is like, unlike anything you've written before, this is so violent and sad and, <laughs> and intense um, but I just like well that's I so I have to go I have to go into a new place as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So that's it very, was new very for mature me. of you. Yeah. Um, but it was fun. It was it was good to to push yourself as a filmmaker as a filmmaker to to a new place to a to even places where I felt uncomfortable to go and had never gone before.
0: Yeah. Um, for the listeners out there, I highly recommend going checking out this film uh, as it does the Monster Fest circuit if if you have the opportunity to. Um, at the time of recording this podcast, it's a Sunday afternoon, and uh, the reason that I've had to grab you on a weekend is because you're currently filming your newest film, Fear Below, which is very exciting. How's everything going with that film so far?
1: Look, it's um, Fear Below is is kind of like my apocalypse now. I feel <laughs> um, because we're, uh, you know, we're, we're we've been here. With some pretty severe problems uh, with the production. Uh, on our first week of the shoot, um, the town that we were in, Achuka, Moama, on the border of New South Wales and Victoria, uh, went into floods. So every one of our locations flooded. Um, our river locations, our you know, our just our normal locations, and even the even the town that we were staying in had to issue an emergency evacuate and we all had to just grab our stuff and literally escape, um, to get away from the floods. Mm-hmm. I was leading a convoy of about 10 cars, a, the long way back to Melbourne to avoid floods. And we had, uh, uh, we had scout teams ahead who were driving and we were following about an hour behind and they were telling us where to go. So we wouldn't get flooded and wow. caught in floods. So we, we had to drop, abandon our, abandoned everything and, and, and stop production. And we had to find a whole new location and all new locations and then keep filming uh, up in Queensland, which is where I am now. Mm-hmm. So we've had, we've had the rug completely pulled out from under us and we've just been trying to pick up the pieces and keep going ever since.
0: So, so- you're not refilming scenes, you're continuing to film? Is that we're just
1: continuing to film. We got, we did a, we did um, six days of filming, and then we were shut down. Right. Uh, um, and we just had to, re- you know, reassess like so quickly. We had to reassess, revamp. I was location scouting, um, driving around regional Queensland looking for a location, and we managed to find one. And where I am here in Gundawindi. Mm-hmm. and then we just had to haul everyone. Up, up to you know, move the entire production into an entire new state, uh, and keep filming. Um, So you can imagine the whirlwind that the entire cast and crew have been thrust into to try to make that happen. And and we've been shooting under windy for six days now, and I tell you what, it's it's just crazy.
0: (laughs) And uh, you've got some big names working on this, like Jake Ryan and Josh McConville. Were they, uh, you know, were they right behind you the whole way? Um, with these interruptions,
1: yeah every everybody's been behind us the whole way and the cast on this have all been fantastic their performances are so good they're such interesting actors and they're all so unique and um what they're doing with the material is just it's just wonderful nice. so it has been great it, they've been great to work with and and um no they're they're all pull, they're all pulling through like we, we feel like we're all in the trenches together on this one um It was funny, I thought after the cost was such a difficult film to make, but I thought, well, Fear Below being a completely financed film, um, it'll be so much easier. I'm really looking forward to that. And um, I feel like the the difficulties of of Fear Below, not only because it's a much more difficult, challenging film, um, you know, just from a production point of view, Mm -hmm. to suddenly have the floods throw that curveball at us, I've I've never made it. I've never experienced something more difficult than making this film. So, every film I make just gets harder than the next. And, and I wonder when, when, when the, when the pattern's going to stop.
0: <laughs> it just, it makes you a better person. It makes you a stronger filmmaker. You know, it could be a blessing in disguise at the end of the day, because you continue to pump out this quality uh, body of work.
1: Yeah. Look, but I guess it's never. Yeah. I, I, I sure hope so. <laughs>
2: um,
1: it, 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 talk, it, it stretches you as a filmmaker and, <laughs> um, you, you hate it while you're going through it because you're like, why me? Why can't I just have an easy experience like everyone else gets? Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I'm just I'm sort of the only, I guess, silver lining in all the difficulty that we're facing is that I'm just hoping that when I look back at all the troubled productions like Apocalypse Now, Jaws, Star Wars, Alien, all the films that had all those nightmare stories behind them what came out of those nightmares was, you know, a, a very unique movie. Exactly. And I'm just hoping that the movie gods have gone, well, we're going to bless you with a wonderful, unique movie, but you've got to go through the trial of fire. Yeah. And um, it's like, well, if the trial of fire gets me the great final product, well, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll persevere.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, and uh, just to give our listeners some context here, the film uh, *Fear Below* is a creature feature with the main antagonist being an aggressive bull shark. Um, countless yes. bo- uh, shark films have been made over the years. What's going to be different uh, with this one compared to those other films?
1: Well, a lot actually. Yeah. Um, the, the it was again like the cost trying to challenge myself to do something different uh, was born out of. My actually, I actually wrote Fear Below while I was shooting the cost. Uh, COVID shut the cost down, uh, and we had to break for six months uh, while we we're all in lockdown. And I said to one of my producers, "I've got nothing to do for six months now." And he said, "We'll write another script." And I said, "I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do that." And he said, "We'll uh, write a um, shark film. I can always sell a shark film. Guarantee I get a <laughs> finance."
0: Hang on, they sound like the words that came directly from Blake Northfield's mouth. Is that correct?
1: <laughs> no, it was actually Michael Fable. Oh. Um, right. Okay. I, I didn't actually know Blake at this point. Okay. Right, um, right. It was so in the, in the earliest days, it was just Michael Ville. He said, I could always sell a shark film, Matt, write yeah. a shark film. Yeah. And I said, I'm not lowering myself to write a shark film. <laughs> and I uh, huffed and puffed about that for a couple of weeks. And and in the end, I said, Matt, are, are you just being stubborn and too proud to write a genre shark film? Uh, you might as well give it a crack because would you rather do nothing or make a shark film?
2: Mm.
1: And so I thought, okay. And I just wrote a list. I literally wrote a list. What do I hate about all the shark films, the modern ones? Mm -hmm. Uh, Jaws is, of of course, the exception. I love Jaws. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought, what made Jaws special in column A? What do I hate about shark films in column B? I I said, right, come up with an idea that doesn't have anything. Come up with a shark film you would like to watch, Matt. Mm -hmm. And that's really what... So I jumped on the phone with my co-writer and I pitched in this crazy idea. And he said, yep, I love it. That's different. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. So... We changed it up. We changed up our film by actually not, from all other shark films, by number one, not not really making it about the shark. Mm. It's actually a story. It has its own little story outside of the shark, Um, and it is not one of those shark movies where we just grab a bunch of characters and abandon them in the ocean or in a cave or Mm. in a cage or something like that. We just because I thought that doesn't give characters any agency. So I thought, well, I need a story outside of the shark to keep this interesting. Mm. So uh, that's what we came up with. And yeah. I decided to set it in the 1940s and to set it in Australia and set it in a river with a bull shark. <laughs> and I thought that's different enough from every other shark film I've ever seen yeah. to be something worth worth making.
0: Yes. Oh, man, I can't wait for this one. I love a good shark film and, uh, yeah, I'm really excited for it. Um, I know authenticity has been a very important uh, part of your filmmaking especially when it comes to costumes and sets and the general aesthetics of an environment and time period are you as strict with authenticity on this film compared to something like the legend of ben hall
1: um no, on this one it's a little looser yeah. um but certainly i mean everyone's vies for on my crew is vying for authenticity when it comes to you know production designer costume designer and all those you know performances we're all going for authentic yeah. So absolutely, I my my authentic eye is cast, you know, all over it. Not really to the extent of Ben Hall, though, um, mm-hmm. because that was you know that because being true story, I I was much more finicky finicky on historical accuracy with and 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 authenticity on that film. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas this film is it kind of uh, we we're, we're kind of blending Raiders of the Lost Ark with Jaws. That yeah. sort of was always our the thing that we were going for. We're going to blend mm-hmm. those two movies together. Yeah. And so it's got much more of a movie, movie matinee, old school adventure. It's a little bit on the lot, It's a little bit more on the fun adventure side, mm. mixed in with a bit of horror, suspense. Um, so that's sort of we're going for something a little bit more uh, fun yes. with Fear Below. Yeah, so right. it's a, we don't have to be as strict.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, very exciting very exciting um i've got one final question here for you which is a question that I ask all of my podcast guests um ask everyone Mm. this question Uh, have you seen any australian film recently that uh, has stood out for you um
1: have you caught anything Mm. any australian film that i've seen recently that really stood out I know the last Australian film that I saw it wasn't recently. I saw it in lockdown, so I guess that's you know not too recently. But the Australian film that I saw recently that really just blew me away was Hotel Mumbai. Oh, um, I know it wasn't like strictly an Australian movie in the sense that it was all set in India, but I know it was made here by Australians and exactly. shot here and yeah,
0: yeah, it's it's um, an Australian film, hundred percent. Yeah,
1: I was, I just, I was, it was such an such an engrossing, engaging, well-directed film. I was like, wow, where did this guy come from? And hats off to him for his debut to deliver such a strong movie. And I just thought, wow, that's like, that's, that was incredible. I thought that was, that was such, such an engaging, such a top-notch movie. And it just made me think, man, we, we can make movies like this in Australia. Of course yeah. we can. Yeah. We just need people to believe in the kind of stories, you know, and, and, you know, we need to let Australian filmmakers off the hook mm. and let them make these amazing movies
2: yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and support them and just let them run wild. But I feel like we're, we're so many Australian films are held back by, by lack, you know, we lack resources. Fi- uh, we relax finances. We relax people that believe in us. We, you know, so man, the possibilities if we were, if we could get past some of those things would be mm. phenomenal
0: a mm. uh, great answer there uh, mentioning hotel mumbai you're the first person who's actually uh, mentioned that film so well done there <laughs> it's, it's such a terrific film mm-hmm. um matthews thank you so much for sharing your stories with us uh, i really appreciate you taking the time to do this especially during uh, you know uh, making your next film um so i can't thank you enough no worries no
1: my pleasure my pleasure Thanks for listening. Find all the latest Australian film news at cinemaaustralia.com.au. You can follow Cinema Australia on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and TikTok.